Welcome to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this edition of Bina, our guest is AIDS, LGBTQ, and labor rights activist Cleve Jones. Jones conceived the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. To mark the 35th anniversary of the quilt, nearly 3,000 of its hand-stitched panels will be on display on June 11th and 12th in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. This will be the largest ever display of the quilt in the San Francisco Bay Area. Cleve Jones is joined in conversation by Peter Stein. And now join Jordan Abel on stage at the JCCSF as she introduces Cleve Jones and Peter Stein. Armistead Maupin said, Some people witness history, others boldly and actually make it happen. Cleve Jones, by planting himself boldly in the eye of the storm, has succeeded brilliantly at doing both. Sorry about that. Cleve felt so isolated growing up as a gay teenager in Arizona that he considered suicide. He read about the gay liberation movement in Life magazine and moved to San Francisco, its epicenter. Cleve was mentored by pioneer LGBT activist Harvey Milk and worked in Milk's City Hall office as a student intern until Milk's assassination in 1978. Cleve co-founded the San Francisco AIDS Foundation in 1983 and founded the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. He was portrayed by Emil Hirsch in Gus Van Sant's Oscar-winning film Milk and was the historical consultant for the production. He led the 2009 National March for Equality in Washington, D.C. and served on the advisory board of the American Foundation for Equal Rights, which challenged California's Proposition 8 at the U.S. Supreme Court. He's here tonight to celebrate his book, When We Rise, which is the partial inspiration for an ABC miniseries from the Academy Award-winning screenwriter Dustin Lance Black and executive producer Gus Van Sant. Cleve appears tonight in conversation with producer, director, and Frameline senior programmer Peter Stein. Please join me to welcome Cleve Jones and Peter to the JCCSF. Thank you. So that's Cleve. <laughs> that's Peter. <laughs> um, there's lots to talk about because you've lived an eventful life um, and you have beautifully uh, uh, re, re, I guess not just relived your life, but really um, brought to life um, much of the uh, singular experiences. Uh, of your own life and in the movement, um, but I didn't want to start with a look back first. I actually wanted to start looking uh, at the at the present moment. Some of you I know were uh, here in the last couple of hours watching the film through which I first met you, Cleve, which was um, a documentary I made about the Castro neighborhood. I, we we met in 1996. I interviewed you then, and it was a chance to have a look at how this gay neighborhood even happened and through this lens of one little neighborhood to see um, what gay liberation had been, had become uh, uh, in, in San Francisco and largely for, for the nation. And I know you have a lot of thoughts about where, what the meaning of being able to be in a neighborhood and find one another on the streets really means. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Where you think the sense of geographic community 
is in in the neighborhood that you're living in and also the meaning of, of and whether we need gay neighborhoods now at all. Well, good. Thank you. And I'm, I'm glad to start with that because it's been on my mind a lot. Um, the neighborhoods are going away. And that's not an opinion. It's a fact. And whether you look at Central Philly or uh, Lakeshore in Chicago or Capitol Hill in Seattle... Um, or if you're old enough to remember Polk Street as the center of the known gay world, uh, you know, walk down it now, there's not the slightest trace of it, except I think the cinch is still there. Um, so I've, I've been talking with people about this, and I spent two and a half hours with a, a reporter from The Guardian, and we walked around the neighborhood, and I talked about all the forces that are transforming LGBT lives, uh, transforming all of our lives, but are having a, a particular impact on LGBT lives, uh, and these were sort of big picture issues, the cost of housing, the, uh, the social media's impact, and the reality that we are now free to live safely in far more places than we were uh, when you and I were young, a long time ago. Um, <laughs> hey. And, um, <laughs> and unfortunately, it got reduced to the, this reporter decided that she wanted to run with me, being annoyed that there were too many straight boys in the mix, which mm. is my local dive bar. And lately, there have been a few too many guys from the Marina District coming down there, and <laughs> they annoy me. But, um, you know, we could have a, t- a conversation about gay space, but that's not the point. The point is the neighborhoods are going away, and the Castro just shows it so dramatically. The cost of living there is insane. You really need to live a, make a quarter million dollars if you're going to live in the neighborhood that gave us Harvey Milk and the Rainbow Flag and the first marching band and I think the first gay synagogue and the quilt and so many other things. So as we are dispersed, we lose a lot. And the most obvious probably is the political power that comes when we're concentrated in, in precincts and able to elect our own. Uh, or elect officials who are required to pay attention to our issues. The second part is just the cultural vitality that happens when you've got cinematographers and drag queens and poets and filmmakers and writers all living in the same area and going to the same places. And I know that that kind of collaboration can happen online, but it's not the same as you know, when you've got a bunch of creatives in the same room drinking wine and making eye contact. Remember eye contact? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then uh, of equal, even possibly even greater importance is our ability to provide the specialized social services that are needed, especially by our most vulnerable, the most vulnerable members of our uh, community. And I'm uh, thinking of HIV survivors, uh, our youth, our seniors, transgender people, if we get dispersed, and no, no aspersions on Benicia or Martinez, but I don't think I'm going to get to see an HIV specialist if I'm there. And those of us who are HIV positive, we need a specialist. That's, you know, you're not going to get appropriate care without it. If you're transgender, you need to, to have a physician that knows the issues. So I'm, real, I'm very worried about it, and when I bring it up, people say, oh, Cleve, cities change. Well, Thanks. Um, you know, <laughs> cities change, but our cities now are changing in a really profound way that is really kind of upending what's the function of cities and the way they function really since the Industrial Revolution began. And we as LGBT people are going to face a you know, particularly unique challenge as this goes forward. Well, I, I guess I just want to 
poke at the whole idea of um, disperse, dispersal into the wider sphere as being completely a, a negative because isn't it also a symptom of the successful integration and assimilation and the fact mm-hmm. that you don't need to be living in only one space right. to feel comfortable anymore? So that's, isn't I, that and something I, yeah, to celebrate? And I, I, I listed that as you know, one of the, the factors that's making this happen. And on the one hand, it should be celebrated. But on the other hand... What comes next? Uh, Scott Schaefer, uh, earlier on, on KQED, Art Agnos called in and said, you know, Cleve, Scott, when you were young and ambitious, you came here. Would you be able to come here now? No way. <laughs> Impossible. So it is good that we're able to live in some of these other places, but we'll see how long that lasts now in the new environment. So... We've already seen an increase in hate crimes against Muslims, against Jews, against gay people, against women. We have no idea what's going to happen, but I have a feeling that we're going to see a lot of young people needing someplace to go that's safe. And where is that going to be? And Mm. can it be a place that they afford? Well, one of the most moving pieces of your book, and really the place where you start, um, really does... Um, begin with the notion of safety and feeling a sense of personal safety, which you did not feel growing up. And it's really hard for people, even uh, of of my age and generation. I grew up in San Francisco, um, and it's, it's hard to remember the times when it was really terrifying to admit to oneself that you might be different, to admit to your family. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm really happy you wrote it at length about it at the beginning of your book. And I'm wondering if you could just sort of paint a picture for, for us here as to really what those conditions were for you as a kid growing up in otherwise a perfectly, um, it seems like a pretty functional, emotionally pretty healthy family in, in Phoenix. <laughs> um, but what, what was that like, those first... Moments of wondering whether you could even enter that door that said, you know, gay students meeting kind of thing. Um, You know, I was born in 1954, which was the year the French were defeated at Dien Bien Phu. So I grew up with the war and the civil rights movement in a progressive household. Uh, My mother at some point discovered that my father's ancestors had been Quaker and she was terrified that I was going to get drafted, so she took me to Quaker meeting. And I liked it. It was nice. And there was a cute boy there. And um, so I became a Quaker. Um, But it's, you know, looking back, it's really amazing just how little information there was. You know, there were no openly gay television personalities or actors at all, no, poly- no elected officials that anybody knew of, certainly no same-sex couples at the Easter egg roll in the White House, you know, that just didn't... And when you did hear about it on those rare occasions, it was usually in the context of someone being arrested for something. And I just kept, kept you know, they, they just kept calling me these names at school, and... Um, there was one kid who just kept saying, you're a homo, you're a homo, and I think I was maybe 12. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, you're a homosexual, and you're uh, sick, and you're going to go to jail, and then you're going to go to hell. And my father was a clinical psychologist, uh, and I went and looked it up in his textbook and read what Martin Bieber had written and Socarides, and it was all, you know, there were pictures of how to do the 
lobotomies and the electroconvulsive shock treatment and the aversion therapy, you know, barbaric, truly barbaric practices. And I was just horrified. And it wasn't until hiding from the bullies one day at the school library and hiding behind a Life magazine. And it was the year in review issue of Life magazine. And had that, it was the first real mainstream press coverage of the gay liberation movement. Stonewall had happened two years before, but if you're a high school kid in Phoenix, you know, I mean, you could have lived in the village and missed it. So um, it was just such an, it was, I think, maybe 10 pages. It was called Homosexuals in Revolt. <laughs> and, uh, and it had all these photographs of these long-haired, hot-looking men with their fists in the air fighting the cops. And I thought, oh, I'm getting out of Phoenix as soon as I can. <laughs> Um, but it truly was a revelation, you know, and life-saving, because as I begin the, and end the book by saying that the movement saved my life, and it is not hyperbole. My mom and dad had both had surgeries, uh, I think when I was 13, and there were a lot of pain meds in the house, and I was pilfering them very carefully, one or two pills every week, and I was building a stockpile because I figured sooner or later someone's going to find me out, and the only option I saw was to kill myself. What, what, what was the actual fear? Was it just that you, that you felt that you were so out of the mainstream that this was, that there was no future for you? What was the, what was the actual fear that you couldn't live? As a- it wasn't just fear, it was a terrible sense of shame. Um, but the fear, um, the fear was of violence. I was beaten up all the time. I would, you know, people would just walk by me in school and shove me and, um, or trip me or you know, make a big circle around me and beat me until I couldn't get up. And it went on and on and on. And uh, I was terrified of, of more of it. Um, I was also terrified of getting drafted, too. And so there was that... I, I, and the only way you could get out at that time was to say you were gay. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I just didn't see any way out and did not know that there were other people who felt the same. I knew that there were, you know, sexual predators out there. I'd read that. I, but everything I'd read about anybody that se- seemed to even come close to what I was was evil and dark and scary. And, and to open up that magazine and see page after page and Troy Perry and I also learned there was a gay liberation commune just three miles away from where I was living and uh, it was just it was just mind-boggling but I, and you I went you, and you I, checked it out yeah and I and then I got the hell out of Phoenix but you know there's a, a young man who's been helping me with my social media stuff who grew up in a progressive uh very educated Jewish family in Berkeley, California, went to Berkeley High and told me just last week that he also, you know, was thinking about killing himself when he was 14 and 15 years old. So uh, we should not think that our young people today have been freed from this, even in places as progressive and as welcoming as Berkeley, California. So it's still there. Um, One of the... Um, ways that you begin to kind of overcome that shame as you describe it in the book is in a way by coming to San Francisco and in a way finding your tribe, finding the, and realizing that there is, um, 
that there's a community. Um, and it's a very powerful feeling for anybody, whether you're an artist who finds like-minded folks who are artists, or if you have a political awakening, you find a, a group of people. I mean, you were still quite young. You were When did you move here? You were... I was 17. Se- 17, right. So... Um, did you have a sense immediately that this was something more than just, oh, this is, these are gay people or queer folks and we're all hanging out together? Was there something more oh, that there... No, yeah. <laughs> no uh, it, it was exhilarating. And, um, you know, to be young and gay in San Francisco in, in the early and mid-1970s, it, it, you just knew. You didn't have to be uh, political. Uh, you didn't have to be educated. You didn't even need to be all that bright to understand that you were being allowed to participate in something that really was brand new and had not been seen before. Uh, so, uh, and it affected the way we lived in, in, in every way. You know, if you were walking down the street, I had a, uh, my first job was a bicycle messenger in the financial district. And, you know, I'd see another kid with a, a pink triangle button on or something. It was before the rainbow was, uh, symbol was created uh, or a lambda sign. And, you know, you'd make eye contact and you'd smile and you'd say hello. And you knew that you had something in common. You had both fled Phoenix or <laughs> Duluth or wherever and, and come here to be part of this. Uh, so there, there was an electricity to it all. And also the, just, the, just the sheer volume of young what we now would call LGBT, just pouring into the city every week and going to city college. I, I mean, just taking the streetcars out to city and then later state was, I mean, it was just yak, yak, yak the whole way. Like, what can we do? And how can we, let's, let's mess with Mayor Alioto. And, you know, <laughs> it was just, uh, it was great fun. It was exhilarating. And it also was really, it was filled with sex, as your book is as well, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That well, I wanted of- to be truthful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was sex. It was not just sex. It was, it was love and romance and the possibilities that had been denied us. And to, you know, I, I, I don't think it's really that difficult to comprehend why that sexual revolution occurred the way it did. We were all coming out of the 50s and the Eisenhower administration and the McCarthy era and that terrible Protestant suppression of any expression of any form of sexuality. And, and we all came here, and it was right after the Summer of Love, and it was, it was glorious. <laughs> <laughs> so um, at some point for you, I guess, the, the nickel must have dropped, or you were pushed in some way, and maybe it was, maybe it was your meeting Harvey Milk. Um, but t- tell us a little bit about how this sort of life experience, this immersion into a community, you're sort of finding yourself, how that turns for you into something of a calling about being active in a, in a movement and being political. Because that was not, as you say, it was not why you came to San Francisco. It wasn't a political no. statement. No, I, I came here to be gay and to be safe. Um, but I was already political. I was radicalized during the Vietnam War era. My parents opposed the war. They revered Dr. King. They took me to Eugene McCarthy's speeches and George McGovern's. Um, the Quakers were very active in uh, helping civil disobedience. And when the farm workers, when Cesar Chavez came to organize the Great Pickers, uh, in, in Arizona, we were, you know, joining those. So I was already politicized. 
This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who have spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's program features AIDS, LGBTQ, and labor rights activist Cleve Jones, whose memoir is When We Rise, My Life in the Movement. He's joined in conversation by Peter Stein. Jones conceived the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. To mark the 35th anniversary of the quilt, nearly 3,000 of its hand-stitched panels will be on display on June 11th and 12th in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. And then the summer after I graduated from high school, 1972, the, there was a Quaker Pacific Yearly Meeting was held in Moraga. And at St. At Mary's. Ex- yes, yeah. at St. Mary's. And um, I had not been to the Bay Area before, and there were two guys. One of them is still alive. His name is Gary Miller. Gary Miller and Ron Bentley were Quakers who were part of the Council on Religion and the Homosexual, and they were attending that uh, Pacific Yearly Meeting, and they brought Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. And they blew my mind. They you should just, explain. Del, oh, Del, Del and Phyllis started the Daughters of Belitis back in the 50s, which was the first lesbian organization, or the first one I'm aware of. And they had a, a publication called The Ladder. And uh, at a time of you know really severe repression, they managed to launch and build and maintain a national lesbian organization about the same time as the Mattachine Society was going with Harry Hay. So I met Del and Phyllis, and they were like fire-breathing lesbian feminists. <laughs> and, for, and I think, I, for, I, I, I think that for many gay, gay boys of, of my age then, feminism was a lifeline. Feminism was an ideology that said, feel what you want, be what you want, you're... Your gender should not restrict you. Tom Amiano later turned it into, I think, biology is not destiny, was his, his little, <laughs> little stuff. But for, for me, 16 years old, 17, reading, reading the feminists of that time, reading Lesbian Woman, gave me hope for myself, even though um, you know, I wasn't who they were writing for and I wasn't who they were organizing. But they liked me and they were really kind to me. And I went back to, I went back to Arizona. I tried to do one semester... I was the worst student in the world, um, but my parents both taught at Arizona State, so they kind of had to let me in. And um, we started a, a little group called GLAD, Gay Liberation Arizona Desert, and, we're having, and we got our first funding from the Associated Students. It was, I think, $500 or something, which to us was just monumental. And we're all sitting around thinking, well, who are we going to bring to talk? We need to have something public. Um, they're batting all these names around, and, and I said, "Well, what about Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon? They, they, their book, Lesbian Woman, is just out in paperback now. I bet a lot of women would come." And they were like, "How would we get hold of them?" I said, "I've got their phone number." <laughs> <laughs> Already networking, <laughs> and they came, and it was the funniest thing. We'd, um, they, we we reserved the the theater in the architecture building at Arizona State, which is the most—it's probably the ugliest building on the ugliest campus ever. Um, <laughs> And I'd reserved the parking space because I knew a lot of people would, I hoped a lot of people would be coming from the community. And about an hour before the event, I show up. The parking lot is packed. 
and it's full of all these dusty old cars with license plates from Nevada and Utah and Colorado and New Mexico and California. These women had traveled across the deserts and over the mountains for hours to come and meet Dell and Phyllis. And in the Q&A section, I told Phyllis that she reminded me of my mother. And she turned around and she said, yeah, you're not, I'm not your mother. <laughs> so that, I mean, I, I had a lot of political influences before I had the good fortune to meet Harvey Milk. Um, but but Har- Harvey was truly instrumental for for you. And what did he? What do you think he saw in you that um, encouraged him to kind of develop your interests and push you out into the world? Or did he do that with everybody? He wanted to see what potential he, use they. Could I be. was one of many many young people that he mentored, gay and straight, boys and girls. Um, with me as interns that same time were. Uh, young lesbian uh, named Corey, uh, and a young African, a heterosexual African-American woman named Deborah Jones, who called herself Shaquille then. And um, Corey passed recently, but uh, Deborah and I are still in touch. And, and we were talking about that. Just He had this ability to, to speak with you for just a little while and discern some kind of strength or talent that you might not even have been aware of. And the idea of public speaking was absolutely terrifying to me. When I was in high school, if I had to do an oral book report, I would probably vomit. I was so self-conscious. I couldn't stand in line. I, went, I didn't eat lunch because I was too self-conscious to stand in line. I didn't go to movies because I couldn't stand in line. I felt that everybody could tell, and oftentimes they did. And uh, So I was just really... Uh, very interested in politics, very interested in the mechanics of organizing. How do you do a press release? How do you write a press release? How do you send it out? Who does it go to? What, I, you know, just how do we lay out this poster? And I mean, I was in, into things like, uh, like the telephone tree that's shown in, in Milk. That was real. That was my way of... of I, I came up with that. I had 10 people, and I called them, and they called 10 people, and they called 10 people, and before you knew it, I'd have 10,000 people in the street screaming bloody murder. And... <laughs> You know, it was pretty good before the internet. So I liked that, and he just pushed and pushed, and then he bribed me with an internship because I kept trying to go to school, and I couldn't do it. I just hate school. And he first I went to film school. I, went to the, I enrolled in the film program at City College, and I made a little Super 8 film. What was it about? <laughs> It was about my two, these two women I was living with who were falling in love, and I was just trying to... And I showed it to Harvey, and he said, you have no talent. <laughs> I'm sorry, but change your major right now. <laughs> and I was what? He said, no, no, you're never going to be a filmmaker. <laughs> you better go to state and enroll in the political science department. And I... I said, okay, and I got in the urban studies program because he told the chair of the department that he would take me to City Hall and I could work with him. And he'd gotten elected, finally, after many, after many attempts, uh, in part, of course, by the force of his amazing character and, ener- and energy and being out on the streets, but also because San Francisco that previous year had changed its um, supervisorial um, system so that people were elected from neighborhoods, from districts. And how important 
was that sense, going back to our first topic, of people feeling that they have political agency in a space Mm -hmm. to say this is our guy. I think it was very important. So that first election under district elections, you saw uh, Gordon Lau, I think the first Chinese-American ever elected to the board, Uh, Ella Hill Hutch, African-American woman, Carol Ruth Silver, single mom, Harvey Milk, gay Jew from New York, um, and... Dan White. Dan, yeah, and then yeah. Dan White. Uh, and both Harvey and Diane Feinstein did try to mentor Dan. I think Dan was obviously a very troubled guy. It, um, but yeah, the board began to look like this people who live in the city a little bit more. And it's kind of uh, striking to see now how much of that has gone away. I mean, the the Fillmore and the Western edition. You know, I got here when that was really just sort of in full throttle of re- redevelopment. Um, I think they're going to probably build some giant luxury condo somewhere on Mission and call it Casa something, and that'll be the end of the mm. Latino influence. But it's it's sad. In terms of um, that sort of organizing a, a, a community, as you learn to do and really kind of help write the book in a way on how you organize the, the, the gay community. What lessons do you take away from that very physical thing where you could meet in a certain place, you could have the phone tree? Is that still applicable today? Yes. Well, let so- me give you a different example. I work for Unite here, which is the Hospitality Workers Union. I've been with the union for about 12 years now. Uh, we represent uh, hotel employees, restaurants, casino food service. We, do, we represent a lot of the workers in airport food courts and campus food courts. Here in this town, uh, the bulk of our membership are the room attendants. Think of the women who clean the rooms in the downtown hotels. So our base for our union is working class, overwhelmingly female, overwhelmingly immigrant, documented and undocumented. Uh, 20 years ago, probably 99% of our members lived in San Francisco. Many of them lived in Little Manila, which do you even remember that Little Manila existed? You know, it was a thriving Filipino community here that has been entirely removed. Large numbers in in the mission, Fillmore, Western Edition. But now more and more and more of our members are being pushed out to the outer suburbs. So what that means for the woman who's cleaning that room is that she's got to get up two hours earlier to get her kids off to school. She's got to put her car on the road with all the traffic and get here on time for work. Then she's got to do that long commute back. So it means, first of all, that those workers have less time with their families, less time to spend with their kids, less time to attend meetings, less time to be available for picket duty when we're on strike or boycotting. So everything about organizing people to fight back and take power for themselves and get better wages and safer working conditions becomes more complicated when your membership is dispersed uh, increasingly. I know people, I know people working, in, young people who work in the Castro right now whose homes are in Stockton. And they drive in and they sleep in their cars. You know, that's the reality. Well, if you're a, a, if you're a single mom with two kids... You don't have time to go to a union meeting. You don't have time to to join your brothers and sisters on the picket line in front of the uh, 
Hyatt Fisherman's Wharf or Le Meridien, don't go to them. Um, <laughs> so I think it's not just LGBT that are being affected by it. We are in, in a unique way, but this is a, 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 real, a real problem. And it, it also it sh- it shakes down in other weird ways. Like people will say, well, the Google buses, you know, they keep... Uh, would you rather have all the people that were on those buses driving their cars back and forth? Well, first of all, I'd rather they live near where they work. Uh, but um, <laughs> but um, you, you say, yes, you take th- they're not in their cars, but then all the workers uh, in the city who've been displaced, who used to live near the Google bus stops, where the, you know, it's now $4,000 for a crappy little studio apartment, are gone, so they're now on the road commuting back and forth. And I, I, I feel like I have to say, since there might be Google bus riders in here, that it is true. My initial response to seeing them is to pitch a rock through the windshield. But I would never do it because I might hit the driver. And also, I know I've become more and more aware that these mostly young people that are taking these, these tech jobs... I don't think many of them would use the, the phrase exploited workers to describe themselves... But they are. They are. And uh, when I get to know these young people, I'm really struck by how, I'm, how badly I have failed in finding a vocabulary that can reach them. These are not our enemies. These are people that are simply trying to live and survive in a very, very expensive city in a very strange time in our history. And I've been putting a lot of thought and energy into just trying to, to find ways to, to communicate with them and help them understand that, yeah, they are part of the problem, but they could be part of the solution, and to do it without blaming or shaming, because uh, in one way or another, we are all complicit in this corporate, strange world we're living in. Um, obviously, the the kind of organizing and activism and messaging that you do. The, the fire has not um, waned for you from the time you were working with Harvey to today, um, and yet we find ourselves, low these, you know, 30-something years, la- 30 years later, um, in a very, very challenging political moment, particularly for the left. And so uh, someone posed to Van Jones the other day on, on, on a some media thing, you know, how do you not get discouraged? How do you, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you do? And I, I loved his response, which was something like, hey, one bad election, I'm not going to give up. Basically nine generations of, of setbacks for African Americans in his family in the United States, and he's not going to, you know, go and cry and go away after one, after one election. Um, and I'm wondering what, your response to the same question would be like how do you take this setback and what makes you able to get up in the morning or are you still figuring that out I I just feel a sort of I mean this is a cataclysm unlike anything I've witnessed in my lifetime but there's still sort of a deja vu sense about it for me because you know I already told you I thought my life was over when I was 15 I'm not exaggerating. I, I didn't see any way out. I thought it was over. And, and then when I came here and Harvey was so kind to me and uh, I wasn't really speaking to my, my own father at the time, so he also had that kind of 
dad kind of thing with me in a very appropriate and encouraging way. Uh, and you know, when I when I found him there, I mean, I'd never seen a dead person before, and I just thought, well, it's all over. Um, what what he was doing for me. Uh, I just felt personally ripped off, and then what he meant for our movement and our city, uh, it just seemed it was over. And then, you know, and then AIDS came, and by, I mean, by the fall of 1985, almost everyone I knew was dead or dying, or home caring for someone was dying, and I thought, well, well it's over, you know, how on earth are we going to survive this? And then I got sick, and I thought it was over again, and and so, you know, election night, <laughs> uh, my boy, I'm in a new relationship. And, um, my, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing someone pretty wonderful. And as it happened, he had to be in D.C. on business on election day. So I'm in my apartment at 18th and Eureka and freaking out with every new update. And I think it was when Pennsylvania came in and I'm calling him every 20 minutes, and he's, of course, he's, he's younger than me, he's texting. And um, <laughs> then, <laughs> finally, uh, and I'm alone in the apartment, and I'm just getting more and more upset, and then finally he called me, and he said, Honey, you just went from zero to Auschwitz in three seconds, okay? <laughs> now, what are you doing alone in the apartment? Go down to Castro Street get a drink, and start planning the march. <laughs> and uh, I went down to Castro Street, and it wasn't ready yet. People weren't ready yet to march. They were still weeping and falling down on the ground and shock and utter terror and disbelief. But then the next morning I got up, and I woke up, and, I'm, and I, I thought, oh, okay. Oh. And I you know, pulled the covers over my head, and I and I just lay there until I just couldn't lie there anymore. And I went online and I saw that a bunch of different people were setting up different Facebook events pages and people were planning to gather here and people were planning to gather there and there. And I thought, somebody needs to organize this. And I <laughs> tracked them all down and called them all up and we worked out an agreement that everybody would have all their individual marches and they'd all convene at Castro and Market and then we'd march to the Mission District and show our solidarity with the people of the Mission, the people that are probably the most in the most immediate danger, the, the immigrant community there. And I don't know, there were 10,000, 15,000 people and it reminded me and that's just always what has sustained me, that, that we, we are not powerless. There are a lot of people that want us very much to feel powerless, especially right now. This is Bina, KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who have spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's program features AIDS, LGBTQ, and labor rights activist Cleve Jones, whose memoir is When We Rise, My Life in the Movement. He's joined in conversation by Peter Stein. Jones conceived the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. To mark the 35th anniversary of the quilt, nearly 3,000 of its hand-stitched panels will be on display on June 11th and 12th in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast 
and you can find it at kalw.org. Do you um, sense that any wind in the sails of the LGBT movement, which we've had this extraordinary last 10 years of marriage equality and the, you know, uh, defeat of the, you know, the transgender bathroom law in North Carolina and so forth. Do you, do you, do you have concerns that the emphasis on um, advancing rights for LGBT folks has to somehow now take a back seat or is, are we all making common no, cause? No, we have to find common cause and I think that... Um, I really feel for these younger people, especially you know, my kids, the LGBT kids, but all of these young people who grew up under Obama and just thought that there was this natural progression towards a more just and inclusive society who have just been sucker punched. Um, I think for LGBT, what we're going to have to do is defend what we've gained, and I think that the attacks will be relentless. And again, I am not and have never been a single-issue person. so. I'm not. I'm, of course, concerned about how our community and the movement, our our part of the movement, responds. But what I'm really more focused on is the larger movement. And I think that maybe eight years of, of Obama facilitated a kind of uh, an, an unfortunate twist in identity politics. And I'm. I'm a product of identity politics, of course. But I feel like more and more from the left, it's dividing people into their little silos. And I think that at this point in our history, if, you're, if your capacity for empathy is limited by skin color, yours or someone else's, or heritage, your own or someone else's, or gender or generation, then we're really doomed. Uh, this needs to be the time to... to yeah, set aside some of this, uh, some of the more extreme manifestations of identity politics, and really come together. And Harvey was so good at that. You know, he could go up to anybody in this town and begin a conversation and and find common ground to have a civil conversation move forward. So I think right now, the left, we who care about social justice and equality and saving the planet and ending racism and poverty, we need to find a a, a more cohesive, cooperative, and respectful way of working together. And that's what I'm praying for. You've you've often uh, found a way to turn even the most challenging setbacks to towards something positive. And I would imagine that Harvey's assassination, which you, as you say, you were just minutes, um, minutes later, just uh, seeing his body on the, in, his, in Dan White's office in, in City Hall, um, that that was a, a tremendous moment of, of doubt or wondering, as you say, whether it was all over. Um, but you, you published something in the book that I hope you don't mind if I ask you to, to read, which is a year later you spoke from a podium. Why don't you set the scene of what, of what it is that you're going to... Well, first, was here. anybody there? At the first anniversary uh, c- uh, uh, candlelight November March. T- 
Yeah. Um, so this was the first year after. Um, as I, I, you know, I want to remind you, I found public speaking just terrifying. <laughs> and so when I started learning how to do it, I would write these speeches and I would spend weeks and then I would memorize them. <laughs> wow. I don't think I have the brain power to do that anymore. And, and Harvey, Harvey was one of your kind of editors, yes? He would say, yes. keep it short. Keep it short. <laughs> Lose the notes. Make eye contact. We are here tonight to dedicate ourselves to the legend of Harvey Milk, that word of his dream and his struggle may spread across this and all nations. We are here tonight to continue his struggle, continue his dream. We are here to spread the word so that our sisters and brothers everywhere may know of the life and death of Harvey Milk. We send this message to all the small children growing up queer in a straight world. We send it to all the strong women and gentle men, to the old faggot uncles and silent spinster aunts. We send them our love and the legend of Harvey Milk so that they may be strengthened and their lives dignified as we who knew Harvey were ourselves strengthened and empowered. We are here to build a legend, but also to remember the reality of Harvey Milk the man, our friend and neighbor. Harvey smiling behind the counter of his Castro camera store, Harvey the Joker, Harvey the Clown, Harvey who, de- who debated John Briggs, Harvey in blue jeans and a torn sweater on the Eight Market bus. We must always remember the man behind the legend that we are building, the man who was neither genius nor saint, the man who was not our movement's first martyr. We must remember that the work done by Harvey Milk is work we can all share, that his achievements are ones to which we can all aspire. We must remember as well that our defeats, our humiliations, our losses were also all shared by Harvey in his time. Yes, we know well that Harvey Milk was not our first martyr, nor our last. He had a lover named Jack, and one summer day in 78, Harvey came home to find Jack's body hanging from the ceiling, a suicide. I wonder how many of you here tonight have lost a friend or loved one to suicide. Raise your candles. Hi, how many? How many of you know a woman who has experienced the pain and terror of rape? Let me see your candles. How many? How many of you have been attacked? How many of you have been beaten by bashers or by the police? How many? How many have heard from behind the taunting cry, Hey, faggot. Hey, dyke. How many? That is why we are here tonight. That is why we marched on Washington. That is why we will keep on marching. That is why Harvey lived. That is why Harvey died. That is why we will not rest until Harvey's dreams is fulfilled. When lesbians and gay men of every age, race, and background come out to join in the struggle with all of us who seek lives of freedom and dignity and joy. It will be a long struggle. There will be decades of campaigns and leaders and no doubt many martyrs. But let no one misunderstand. Our movement is powered by the determination of a people too long denied, too long abused, a people who seek only the freedom to live, to work, and to love. Let no one misunderstand. We are deadly serious. We grow daily in power, and we will not be stopped. That is why we are here tonight. That was uh, November 27th, 1979. Wow. Prescient and powerful, and even if you say you weren't a public speaker, Cleve, you're a public speaker. 
Um, <laughs> My I, mom later said, you know, talking, it seems to be your only legally marketable skill. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jordan has a mic, and we'd love to have your questions and thoughts and um, probes for memory or ideas, um, preferably questions, um, uh, for, for Cleve. So, so don't be shy, because Cleve hasn't been... Um, so I have a question about the, the fight against AIDS wasn't just a fight against the virus. It was a fight against apathy and bigotry. What are the lessons you think that fighters for social justice overall can learn from the, the, the battle that you and, and the movement fought against uh, that bigotry and apathy during the AIDS crisis? I think that, uh, you know, the, it was pretty remarkable. I mean... It, AIDS proved us in a lot of ways, I think. I think, it, um, I think that so much of, there's this new sort of revision of history that marriage equality, the, the, the focus on marriage equality was imposed by the big, rich national organizations run by wealthy white men uh, for their own advantage. It's, the, it's not true. The, they all opposed it. Um, it came out of people who, I think, went through that epidemic and said, what do you, you know, after what we've been through, what do you mean this isn't a marriage? To hell with you. This is exactly what a marriage looks like. So I think that part of what happened there was that we ourselves who were going through it saw the power and dignity of our community because suddenly we had to count on that community. And I think it, 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 it increased that value. We were relentless we were outrageous, we took huge risks, and we were also very smart. Um, you know, ACT UP is remembered mostly, I think, for the, the bold graphics and the, the startling demonstrations and the sit-ins and the rest of it. But it was also ACT UP that engaged the Food and Drug Administration and the NIH and even the pharmaceutical industry in a very, very smart way. I end my book, I begin and end my book by saying I owe my life to the movement. And I already told you about what happened when I was 15, but you know, I was dying of pneumocystis pneumonia and I was allergic to the, the treatments and I was very close to death and I got into a clinical trial that had expanded access. And for those of you that don't, before, prior to ACT UP, if you were dying and wanted a medication that was still in clinical trials, you, you could enroll in a double-blind placebo study and never know if you were getting the actual medication. Not much good to someone who's, you know, three weeks away from death, as I was. And so because of ACT UP, I got into an expanded... I got expanded access into a clinical trial, and it saved my life. Uh, there, no exaggeration, it saved it. So uh, I've been thinking a whole lot about th those years. And also... Um, the broader movement, not just ACT UP. Uh, ACT UP to me you know, did great work, and I love Larry Kramer, even when he was making fun of me in the quilt. He said, we should burn the quilt. And I said, well, Larry, let's just wrap you up in it first. And, um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> another thing you have to do, movements uh, need to keep growing. And while the, much of the... the gay left and some of the, the straight left was already mobilized around HIV AIDS and the most vulnerable populations were already, you know, quickly radicalized by it. Um, you know, part of it was I just kept thinking, my grandmothers are going to just, it's going to break their hearts when I die. 
my, I was the first grandchild. So you know how much love I got from them. And I always knew my grandmothers were just amazing, strong, fierce, independent, brilliant women and who adored me. And either one of them, I believe, would have gladly given her life to save mine. And I wanted to create a place for them in the movement. And that's part of the, how the quilt happened, you know. Uh, you can go a long distance fueled by rage, but after a while it, it burns out and you burn out. So we were all well aware of the hate that was out there. We needed to see evidence of the love. We were well aware of the bigotry and prejudice. We needed to see the unity and solidarity that was out there. So these are the, all of the things that are in my mind right now, is how do we build the broader movement? How do we bring more people in? How do we focus? How do we be smart? How do we be strategic? And for all the misery of those years, and I don't know if you were living here, were you living here during that? I mean, so, you know, I'm sure our experience is very similar. We lost so many, so many people. Uh, I'm still haunted by it, but I... I'm very proud of the way uh, we fought back. I felt like everybody contributed. And some people didn't go to the marches or do the quilt. Some people just stayed home and cared for their partners. And it's going to require us to have that kind of, of, of unity and determination now. Uh, Cleve, it's just been such a pleasure uh, having you here. We look forward also to the part of your story that is being dramatized and maybe, who knows, fictionalized in the ABC miniseries, which we didn't even get a chance to talk about. Just really quick, ABC, which is owned by Disney. (laughs) M-I-C, K-E-Y, M-O-U-S-E, we'll see. (laughs) But uh, it follows me and several other wonderful people from San Francisco, including Roma Guy, the woman who started the the, uh, Women's Building, and Cecilia Chung, a a pioneer trans activist, and Ken Jones. And it takes its title from your title, which is When We Rise. Yes. Thank you again, Cleve Thank you. Thank you. Bina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's guest was A's LGBTQ and labor rights activist, Cleve Jones, whose memoir is When We Rise, My Life in the Movement. He was joined in conversation by Peter Stein. Jones conceived the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. To mark the 35th anniversary of the quilt, nearly 3,000 of its hand-stitched panels will be on display on June 11th and 12th in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. This will be the largest ever display of the quilt in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program. Our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Roshanim Trio. And the music you're hearing right now is by John Zorn. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Thanks for listening.